the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground for Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Tonight we have a little bit of a different show on. We're going to have an interview with Mark Elliott, who wrote a book about Charlton Heston, one of my favorite movie stars. But the first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law, and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from a nursing home. So usually Beth reads the email question of the week, and she's here tonight. But Hello? Chris Cordani, our producer, is going to read the uh, email question. Thank you, Mike. The question is from Anna Marie this week, and she asks, what types of benefits can be obtained through home care Medicaid? Also, can I hire my own home care attendant through Medicaid, and how would that work? Okay, well, first, what kind of benefits are available for home care Medicaid? Home care Medicaid pays for home equipment, supplies, home attendance to keep you or your family member out of a nursing home. There are a lot of good programs in New York as far as home care Medicaid is concerned. You can hire your own family members. I mean, basically, if you're over 65 or you're disabled, you put all your assets in an irrevocable trust, you know, let's say during the month of April, on May 1st, the first day of the month following the transfer, you can apply for home care Medicaid. What kind of benefits? Home attendance, home equipment, supplies. Now, home attendance, of course, is the most important component of that. Because Medicare does not pay for home attendance services. Medicaid pays for home attendance services. And again, if you're over 65, you put most of your assets in an irrevocable trust in April, you can apply for home care Medicaid in May. If you have income, Social Security pension, we may have to put that in what we call a pooled income trust, basically to protect the income from Medicaid. We can do that. The next month, you're eligible for home care Medicaid. And if we have a doctor, medical doctor we can work with that says you need 24-hour, seven-day-a-week care, that can be obtained. There are a lot of good programs in New York for home care Medicaid. The main point is you may want to think about a trust, an irrevocable trust, where you place your assets in a trust with one of your children or a combination of your children or other relatives. They hold the assets for you. Then the next month, if you're blind, disabled, or over 65, you can apply for home care Medicaid. And that means there's no look-back period, right? There there is no look-back period for home care Medicaid. You know, nursing homes have a five-year look-back period, which means if you apply for nursing home Medicaid, you have to document all your transactions for five years prior to your application for benefits. There is no five-year look-back period for home care Medicaid. You put your assets in a trust today in April, you can apply for home care Medicaid in May. All right, Chris. Now, we've been talking a little bit about, we're going to do seminars in Queens at the end of April, and you started something new with our office about registering for the seminars online. So how does that go? Right now, you can actually register for Connors & Sullivan seminars online on the website, connorsandsullivan.com. You'll see a seminars button, or just go directly to connorsandsullivan.com slash seminars. We'll have a sign-up sheet. It's really easy, and it can be done in seconds. At the seminars, we talk about estate planning and elder law, and we try to say the main part of our seminars How do I save my house from nursing home bills? I'm not saying there are not other questions. There are a lot of other questions. We talk about estate taxes, death taxes. We talk about avoiding probate. But the main question I think most people have when they come to the seminars is, how do I protect my house from nursing home bills? And believe me, we'll tell you the best way to do it, to get the the house out tax-free to your children, escaping nursing home bills, and avoiding probate. So if you want to learn about that, Coming to one of our seminars at the end of April, we're going to be in Queens, Maspeth, on April 23rd. 
Thursday, we're going to be in Howard Beach, April 27th, April 28th, Bayside, Queens. So if you want to come to the seminars, seating is open, but please call so we have an idea of how many people are going to be there. We like to have an idea of how many numbers of people are going to be in the audience so we can set up the room, you know, correctly. Beth, Charlton Heston. Oh, isn't he great? Yes. So we got a book coming out about Charlton Heston. Mark Elliott. Mark Elliott wrote a book uh, about John Wayne that we had on, I think, about two years ago, wasn't it, Chris? Yeah, he was on with us a couple of years ago. Yeah, he wrote a very good book about John Wayne, American Titan. And now he's coming up with a book about Charlton Heston. You know, those of you may remember, we had Frazier Heston on, Charlton's son, who directed him in more than a few good films, including, you know, we were looking at Black Sails, Beth, I know, I know over the last few weeks. To me, it was a little bit of a letdown, but that's not the point. The point is, I think the best Treasure Island that was ever made was starring Charlton Heston as Long John Silver and directed by Frazier Heston. I, I had never heard of it. You know, I don't know how I missed it, just, but um, I always thought of the old-timey um, Long John Silvers, but uh, Charlton Heston was, was wonderful. And what was the name of the young boy? Christian Bale. Christian Bale. And he was great. You know, he's a kid at the time, but he was great. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. We'll be back in a few minutes. We're going to be talking to Mark Elliott, his book on Charlton Heston. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, April 25th at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Maspeth, Queens, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. On Thursday, April 27th at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03. Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach, Queens at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. and at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens on Friday, April 28th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors and Sullivan. 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Time now for Connors Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. A little over a year ago, we were talking to Mark Elliott, who wrote a book about John Wayne, American Titan. And now he's got a book about, I would say, one of the last great movie stars of Hollywood. And as Mark says, Hollywood's last icon, Charlton Heston. How are you doing today, Mark? Great, great. Thank you. Everybody knows who Charlton Heston was. But why did you decide to write a biography of his life? I've always been attracted to those um, Hollywood uh, celebrities and uh, actors and actresses who uh, don't exactly line up uh, the way everybody wants them to. Maybe a little rebellious, uh, a little, just a little off-center. 
Wayne was certainly that. Uh, Clint Eastwood was that. Jack Nicholson. And I've always thought that Heston um, was just a little bit off-center, uh, He, uh, especially toward the end when he got involved with the NRA. And unfortunately, that's what most people seem to remember most about him, that and Moses. And I thought, wow, there's such a great story here I'd like to tell. So I looked into it, and um, indeed there was, and that's really how the book came about. Now, I didn't know this, but Charlton Heston was in the military during World War II? That's right. He, uh, he actually saw action. He was stationed um, off of uh, Alaska in the Aleutian Islands, and he was a radio man. He was, he was trained uh, to be a radio man, so he had to go on flights on all the uh, missions um, uh, fighting the Japanese. So he was on dozens of missions and saw action. And uh, his experience kind of reminded me a little bit of Jimmy Stewart's experience, who was also um, uh, in uh, World War II, saw action in the Atlantic. I think both men grew from that experience from war, and uh, it matured them in a, in a special way. And uh, you can see it in their, in their movies, I think. They were both definitely part of uh, that greatest generation of um, heroic figures in America. Well, of course, they did get a chance to act together in what was the greatest show on Earth. That's right. Uh, uh, Jimmy, this was 1951. Jimmy's career was had not quite recovered from his time away from Hollywood, almost five years, because he enlisted right away and uh, went, went to war. Um, and when he came back, there were a whole new crop of actors coming up who had uh, trained in the in the interim, and one of them was uh, Heston. Heston had not really acted before the war, but when he uh, after he he moved to Manhattan, did a lot of theater, and live television, and then was discovered by Hollywood. So, uh, the greatest show on earth was Heston's second film, uh, and it was the first for DeMille. And DeMille wanted to give Jimmy Stewart a break. So he cast him as the clown, uh, who's also, I don't think I'm telling any stories out of tale at this point, who's also the murderer in the film, uh, a sympathetic uh, a character. But, you know, because it's a uh, the DeMille film, you see things that you, actually wouldn't happen in real life, like Jimmy Stewart sleeping in his clown makeup. It's uh, just that kind of... Uh, that kind of cinematic license. Uh, Jimmy and uh, Heston got along really, really well and remained friends for the rest of their lives. You said Charlton Heston did television work. What kind of television work was he doing after the war? When the war ended, he and his wife, he had married his sweetheart from uh, Northwestern. They both decided to move to New York and pursue careers in acting. Um, uh, Jimmy didn't do as well as Lydia Heston, his wife, did. She got uh, some work right away. But he, um, he hung in there. He eventually got some work on Broadway. Uh, and uh, at the time, a lot of soldiers were coming back from the Atlantic Theater and landing in New York and staying in New York because they were all on the GI Bill and they all wanted to go to acting school. The main reason was to meet girls, really. That was the reason. So um, all these acting teachers uh, sprung up in the, in the city and opened up schools. Those schools got all those actors work because live TV ate content. It just needed constant uh, material. And so they did a lot of live plays, and they went to these schools to get actors to be in them. Um, uh, Heston tried out um, for uh, Studio One, I believe it was, got cast, and he was one of that, that group of actors. Uh, Paul Newman was one, James Dean was one, Ronald Reagan did it, um, uh, Jack Lemmon was, uh, was a regular, uh, Eva Marie Saint. They all broke in um, doing these live broadcasts. And uh, uh, um, Heston was was seen on uh, a live broadcast of Macbeth 
by Hal Wallace, the, the independent producer from Hollywood, who later on would do uh, a lot of Elvis movies and Martin and Lewis comedies. Wallace had also produced Casablanca, so he, he was a veteran and always on the lookout for a new face. He saw Heston on TV and said, uh, this fellow has got the right stuff for Hollywood. So that's really how Heston made the move to, uh, to pictures. So it was theater, it was live TV, and then motion pictures. What was his first film? Uh, the first film was a film noir. I think it was Dark Glass or, or Dark Something. It, it, didn't, it didn't go very far. It didn't, it didn't do very well. And it, it, that was part of a deal he had with, with uh, Wallace. And um, after that film bombed, I think it was Dark City, after that film bombed. And one of the reasons it didn't do that well is because Heston was cast as a villain. And uh, I don't think he ever successfully played uh, a villain in his 50-year film career. That, that was a mistake on Wallace's part. But out of that film, uh, Heston was ready to go home. He was ready to go back to New York and pursue stage acting. That was his first love. When uh, DeMille saw him on the Paramount lot, and uh, they waved to each other, even though they didn't know each other, that was kind of Heston's way. And uh, DeMille said to his secretary, who, who is that guy? And she said, oh, you saw him in Dark City and you didn't like him. Yeah, uh, DeMille said, but I like him now. So let's test him for the greatest show on earth. Now, the, the role that he wanted Heston for was a role that hadn't yet been cast, and that was the role of the ringleader of the, uh, of the circus, the, the man in charge. And that, of course was the on-screen version of DeMille. So he was looking to cast an actor who could play DeMille on screen. And somehow the short, bald, kind of homely DeMille thought that the tall, handsome Charlton Heston was his perfect on-screen double. And that's, uh, that's how Heston got into uh, The Greatest Show on Earth and eventually The Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston never really, he never played backup roles or supporting roles. You know, he, w he was the leading man almost right away, or was right away. Uh, that's right. He did do, uh, after The Ten Commandments, uh, Universal wanted him for anything he wanted to do. And they threw a million scripts at him. Uh, but he decided that he wanted to work with Orson Welles. Wells was one of his idols, uh, both for stage and, of course, for uh, the films, you know, Citizen Kane especially, um, and he wanted to work with him. Uh, Wells, by this time, had been thrown out of Hollywood after uh, The Lady from Shanghai, uh, which was a debacle, and Hollywood wouldn't use him, so Wells had to make these independent films, mostly overseas. But Heston uh, said to Universal, I want to work with um, Orson Welles. If you want me, you've got to take Welles. So they had this script, um, which became Touch of Evil, and uh, they cast Welles in it as um, the evil detective, and Heston as the lead, um, as the other detective, the, the Mexican detective. But Welles then went to Universal and said, I won't be in the film unless I can direct it. And uh, Universal went back and forth, and finally they threw their hands up and said, okay, let him direct. And he also wanted to write it, which they wouldn't let him do, but he rewrote it anyway. And the result of all of that is that Heston's role was reduced to a supporting role because Wells made himself the star of the film. Uh, and so for coming off of the Ten Commandments, Heston was reduced to a supporting actor. And, uh, and he knew it. He knew it was happening, but he, he was a generous guy, and he wanted to give Wells a chance to come back to Hollywood. And after that, uh, William Wyler cast him in The Big Country. But that was a Gregory Peck film that Peck starred in and produced in and was directed by Wyler. And uh, Heston was given, again, a supporting role. But he took it because he wanted to work with William Wyler and, and uh, Gregory Peck, who was a, a good friend of his. And, and it was out of that that Wyler cast him as uh, Ben-Hur. And, of course, that, that changed everything for uh, Heston forever. How did Ben-Hur come about? I mean, you know, that's a big production. William Wyler is chosen to direct it. Does he originally want Charlton Heston to play Ben-Hur? 
No, he wanted Heston to play Masala, which is a smaller role in the film. Uh, interesting thing is that uh, when Heston first came to Hollywood for Dark City, uh, Weiler tested him for the detective story and said to him, you know, you're, you're not there yet, but one day you will be there, and, um, and when, I, when I see that, I will use you. And that's what happened uh, with uh, The Big Country. And then Weiler got a chance to do... Ben-Hur. Now, the thing about Ben-Hur is that MGM, the studio that made it, was going bankrupt. They had, uh, as all studios were having problems because of TV and other things, blacklisting, uh, the studios were in trouble. The end was near. Uh, in, in 57, MGM put all of its chips on a film called Rain Tree County with Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor, hoping that would be another... Gone with the Wind, a big southern epic. Well, that film was a disaster. Uh, Cliff had his accident. Taylor was impossible to work with. And um, it went severely over budget. And when it was released, nobody went to see it. So the studio looked around and said, what are we going to do? How are we going to save ourselves? And they saw that The Ten Commandments was the biggest box office film to that point of the 50s. It was uh, the biggest live-action film. Disney had a couple of animated features that, uh, you know, buried everybody. But the number one uh, real, uh, real action film was The Ten Commandments. So they went to work, and they decided that they would remake The Ten Commandments or copy it in a film of their own, and that film became Ben-Hur. It had been a silent film. Uh, they, they owned the property. They had a version, a sound version of it written that they never used. So they said, well, this will be the film that, that will save us. And uh, they went to William Wyler, who was very hot at the time. He had just won an Academy Award for a Friendly Persuasion and then The Big Country, which is a huge success. And Wyler... Um, Weiler always joked that uh, uh, between the two films, uh, his was better because he, he said it takes a Jew to make a film about Jews. And, of course, Weiler was Jewish, and um, DeMille was only half Jewish. So uh, he made the film, and he, he thought really that his version of the same story was the superior one, and it, it probably was in, in many ways. You know, both films are about a Jewish prince, who then becomes a slave, who then becomes a prince again and redeems his people, and is affected by a religious experience. In the Ten Commandments, of course, it's the burning bush. In, um, in, in Ben-Hur, it's Jesus giving him water, which changes his life. And then, of course, at the end, he is there at the crucifixion. Um, and, and so it, it's a very... It's a very unique film. Um, I never get tired of seeing it, but the similarities between the Ten Commandments and, the, and Ben-Hur are very obvious and vivid. And the reason why eventually Weiler gave Heston the role of Ben-Hur was because the studio wanted him to use the same star from the Ten Commandments. So that's how it came about. Now we need to take a short break. Do you have a few more minutes? Sure. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. We're talking to Mark Elliott about Charlton Heston. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? 
These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We're talking to author Mark Elliott about his book, Charlton Heston, Hollywood's Last Icon. Now, we're just at the end of, or we're starting to talk about Ben-Hur. The Oscars are coming around. What happens? Heston gets nominated, and the film gets uh, uh, 11 nominations, or 11 or 12 nominations. And um, Heston was angry that the screenplay... Uh, the, the screenwriter that he preferred, who he felt had written most of the film, couldn't get nominated because the uh, the Screenwriters Guild had and still has a rule that the first writer on uh, a film is the writer who can get nominated. And uh, Ben-Hur had a whole slew of writers, including Gorby Dow, Christopher Fry, the British poet, and, and some others. Um, Heston uh, made a Heston won his Oscar, his first and only Oscar. The film won eleven Oscars, which was at that time the most any film had ever won. And um, when he gave his acceptance speech, he made a point of mentioning the screenwriter who didn't get nominated over the screenwriter who did get nominated. And interestingly, that was the only Oscar the film didn't win was uh, screenwriting. And really, the uh, the effect of all of that was to uh, bring Heston into the political realm of Hollywood. He He decided then that he would take a more active role in the unions because he, he, he wanted to fix them. He wanted to make them fairer. So that really is a turning point in many different ways in Heston's life. His biggest movie, his most successful movie, his only Academy Award film, and his entrance into the politics of Hollywood. Now, he had another big budget film not that long afterward, El Cid, which wasn't quite as successful. Oh, El Cid was made in Spain, and it was made by, um, produced by overseas money. And uh, that's the reason it was shot in Spain. The, the deal was that they would finance the film if it was shot in Spain. And, um, you know, Heston had by that time gotten a reputation of someone who made uh, films about uh, biblical times, ancient times. This is a film that is set in the 12th century, and it's about the uh, Muslim armies of North Africa invading uh, Spain. And, of course, in America, nobody knew what a Muslim army was in those days. Uh, it was something that we have since come to uh, be very aware of. But back then, no. Uh, so the film had a very limited appeal here, and I think it was only released once and uh, never seen here again. Part of the reason was... Uh, uh, problems with the copyrights and the producers and all that. But it, it also created an interesting paradox for Heston, because by that time, I think it was 62 or 63 when the film was made, he was heavily lobbying via the the uh, Screen Actors Guild for more films to be made in Hollywood to keep actors uh, Hollywood actors working. But in fact, he was making most of his films overseas, and uh, his answer to that was, well, I have to go where the work is. But really, uh, it, it's a kind of a contradiction that runs through most of his career. It was a huge film, uh, El Cid, overseas, uh, but it didn't quite make it here. And it also signaled uh, the beginning of a downturn in, in Heston's career. Well, if- <laughs> Even after that, there are quite a few great films coming up. And, of course, the, the uh, probably one of the greatest sci-fi pictures ever, Planet of the Apes. Well, Planet of the Apes is Heston's big return. 
I mean, that film brought him right back to the top of the box office heap. Not only that, but he was a pioneer in bringing science fiction back to the A-level. And what I mean is, uh, in the 50s, you still had double features in, in movie theaters. And with a couple of exceptions, The War of the Worlds, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, sci-fi had been relegated to the B or second feature. They were usually quickies, made in black and white, uh, cheesy special effects, and always the same film. Scientists at the end of the film warning, unless we change our ways and nuclear, all of that. That was usually the theme of those films. Uh, and um, they had kind of disappeared when A films or the big productions became single features. Heston loved this script. It, it had come to him uh, twice, and the second time when he read it, he, he asked for um, the Twilight Zone uh, creator, Rod Serling, to look at it and to fix it up a little bit to make it filmable. And, of course, Serling uh, is the reason the film has all its great touches. And, in fact, it's very similar to a couple of Twilight Zone episodes. There's an episode where the, uh, the rocket ship crashes in, the, in a desert on a foreign planet and uh, all three uh, astronauts uh, try to figure a way to go back home. They they don't make it, and then the camera pulls back, and you see they're about a half a mile from uh, a highway in California. Well, that's essentially the same plot as Planet of the Apes. They they crash on a foreign planet run by apes, and at the end of the film, when he sees the Statue of Liberty, only then does he realize that they're really on Earth. So um, it was a, it's a fun film. It's not really about anything besides great entertainment. Uh, and it restored science fiction to the A level. Six months later, Kubrick's 2001 came out after Planet of the Apes and, uh, and also had an ape sequence in it and was a huge A film. So Heston was there first, and uh, that, that franchise, you know, they're still making them today, and they're still very successful. There was a TV version for a while, TV series. So Heston has to get a lot of credit, I think, for pioneering science fiction back to top movies and for daring to make that film, which was so against type for him. But, you know, he was a visionary, I think, and he knew that made correctly that film would be a hit, and he was absolutely right. We talked about Moses, Ben-Hur, Planet of the Apes. What was Charlton Heston's favorite role? His favorite role was Will Penny, which was a, uh, a, a moderately successful Western uh, that he made. He really loved that film, and part of the reason is that character an over-the-hill cowboy uh, who comes across um, a, a widow and her son and falls in love with her, but in the end can't make that commitment and winds up leaving and going into the wilderness. Uh, if that sounds familiar, it's because there's a lot of Shane in Will Penny. It's a very similar type film. And also later on, Dances with Wolves has a lot uh, similar with this film in, in the, the way the character is developed and falls in love with that uh, woman and then decides to go off at the end. Um, that film, Will Penny, is very close to the way Heston grew up. He was a loner. Uh, he had trouble uh, um, with, uh, with sustaining relationships until he met his wife, and uh, he never wanted to have trouble in his marriage because of what he went through as a child when his parents divorced. It was very traumatic for him. This film, Will Penny, is a film about a man who cannot make that commitment, uh, who believes it's too late for him and will never be able to live a happy life, settle down into domesticity. So there are echoes uh, that Heston could relate to, and he felt that that character, Will Penny, was the closest to who he really was, of all the characters he played. At this point, I guess he's starting to get involved in politics, both uh, union politics and national stage. Right. He, uh, he, he was mentored into, um, into the Screen Actors Guild by Ronald Reagan, who had been the president before 
uh, Heston, a few a few people before Heston, but he brought Heston onto the board of directors of the Screen Actors Guild and really mentored Heston into the into the ways of Hollywood and um, politics. That there was a link there. That that there is a way to make a difference. And uh, Heston was uh, quite quite taken with that. Admired uh, Reagan, but when Reagan became president. Heston actually went up against him uh, for funding for the National uh, Council uh, for the Arts, the National Foundation for the Arts, because when Reagan is Reagan's first term, he wanted to cut all the entitlement programs, which, he, being a conservative, he felt that all that money should come from the private sector or from sponsorship, not from the government. And um, Heston uh, believed that these these programs were vital for the preservation of film, for uh, the making of non-commercial films, for training new actors, training new directors. So um, uh, as he was also on the board of the American Film Institute, AFI, which depended upon that funding to, for its existence. So he went up against Reagan and lobbied heavily for months to get Reagan to restore most of that money. And in the end, Reagan did, and uh, that was a huge victory for Heston, for the AFI, for Hollywood, for students of motion pictures everywhere, and for film preservation. So what a lot of people don't realize about him, he was not just an activist at the end of his life, but he was an activist in the prime of his life, fighting for what he believed in, which was um, Hollywood, federal funding for the arts, preservation of film, and the training of new actors. And that led him eventually to take uh, an ever larger role uh, in politics. He was uh, an active supporter of JFK in his early days, in Heston's early days. He was, even before that, he, he supported um, Adlai Stevenson, uh, and he supported uh, um, uh, uh, Johnson when, when he ran in 64. Uh, but what turned Heston more to the right, more to the conservative side, was in 67 or 68, he decided that he wanted to visit the troops in Vietnam, the soldiers that were in Vietnam, because he, he didn't like all the criticism that uh, that, uh, that generation was, was putting on the soldiers. There was a lot in, in the late 60s, there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, anti-war uh, activism, but some of that went to the soldiers. And um, and the, the activists and the left believed that the soldiers shouldn't have even gone there, and that that was such a, a skewed way of thinking, I think. And so did Heston. So he went to uh, to see the soldiers, took all their names, uh, took all their phone numbers, and called every one of their mothers, wives, girlfriends when he got back to uh, Hollywood. But that changed him. He felt that the anti-war effort was misplaced, and he decided that he could not be against the soldiers, even if he wasn't 100% um, uh, for the war. But remember, he was the greatest generation war hero. So he sided with, uh, with the soldiers fighting, and he thought that uh, uh, the American youth and the American left should have realized that the soldiers were heroes, uh, even if the war was something that they couldn't support. They were still putting their lives on the line. And that's, that's really what moved Heston to a more conservative uh, place. And in, and, uh, in 68, he supported Nixon for, um, for president uh, over, uh, over um, I guess it was Humphrey. Yeah. And uh, then in 72, of course, he supported uh, uh, Goldwater over, uh, I guess it was McGovern. So... Um, he never really went back to his um, liberal side, his Democratic side politically, but he always had a soft spot for um, uh, for uh, people wanting to better the arts. So his son, Frazier, and I talked about this a lot, and Frazier said, well, he was a political conservative, but he was a social liberal. <laughs> and I, I, guess, uh, I guess you can kind of make a case for that somehow. <laughs> now, do you get into the book his relationship with Frazier? Because they did a number of films, you know, in his later part of his career. 
That's right. Um, a lot of people don't know that uh, Heston um, didn't make a feature film for Hollywood for 11 years uh, after he got involved more actively with the NRA and all of that. Uh, he was kind of gray-listed. And what he did was he formed his own production company, Agamemnon Films, with his son, and they produced a series of films. They were not really all that successful, but uh, some of them are not bad. Uh, Treasure Island, there was a Sherlock Holmes film, The Crucifer of Blood. Uh, there was an Antony and Cleopatra remake that uh, he did. So it gave him a way to work, and it certainly brought him closer to his son, Frazier. Now, a lot of people don't know that Frazier, when he was a baby, played the baby Moses in the Ten Commandments. Uh, DeMille thought that would be a great touch. The baby was three months old, and Moses in the Bible, when he's put uh, into the Nile, is three months old. So uh, there's a little, a nice little touch in uh, the Ten Commandments. And Frazier, Frazier originally wanted to be um, a marine biologist, but slowly but surely changed his direction and uh, loved working with his dad. They had a, a very close, uh, wonderful relationship. And um, when I wrote this book, um, once Frazier decided that, okay, he wouldn't be against it, although I didn't give them any editorial control, he opened up the entire archives to me, all the journals, all the letters, um, uh, everything that, that he had, so that this book would actually be the best it could be that, that I could write. So Frazier, in my book, ranks very high, and um, he's an honorable guy. He, he really got in there, worked with me on uh, getting papers and getting letters, and worked with his father for many, many years. And Agamemnon lives on now um, after Heston's death uh, through Frazier, who, who runs that company and uh, licenses all the, uh, uh, the Heston material. Um, a good guy. I put him on the good side. Okay, we're talking to Mark Elliott about Charlton Heston. He has a book out, Charlton Heston, Hollywood's Last Icon. Overall, in summary, what's your conclusion about Charlton Heston, his career, his life, his activism? Well, as a, uh, as a figure of uh, Hollywood, uh, from the last days of the studios, all through independent filmmaking, I mean, uh, there's no other way to describe him except as one of the titans, one of the giants of Hollywood. Uh, most careers uh, as movie stars last about seven to ten years on the top, and then they kind of fade out. For women, much less. There's a four- or five-year cycle that they go through, and then, you know, it's the all-about-Eve syndrome. There's always a younger, prettier girl waiting to come on, and uh, you see that in films. You know, whatever happened to so-and-so, whatever happened to so-and-so, it's, uh, it's because films today are made for young people, so they want young actors and actresses, and there's a, a bigger turnover. So when you realize that Heston's career in film lasted over 50 years, there is no way you cannot rank him at the very top of Hollywood icons. Uh, and uh, as for his activism, I once asked um, Frazier um, if he thought his father ever regretted all the NRA stuff and, you know, the uh, cold dead hands stuff. And he said absolutely not. His father was a committed idealist in a way and uh, uh, stood up for what he believed in. And if the consequences were what they were, he was willing to accept them, which I thought was the right way. I mean, that's when you, when you stand up for something, even if it's not the most popular thing, you don't change your beliefs because they're, they're not popular. Uh, he was a Second Amendment fellow. Uh, toward the end, when he was losing his audience, the NRA gave him an audience, and I think that was part of the appeal for him. Did the NRA exploit him a little bit? Maybe. Maybe they did. Uh, I talked to all, all, those, um, all those people in the NRA. They were open. They were honest. They were direct. And, um, you know, when he came aboard, the NRA was about to go under. They, was just, they had nobody uh, who could support them. Uh, Heston gave, gave them a face, gave them uh, a commitment uh, that he kept right up until the end. So... 
Was he right or was he wrong? I, I think that depends upon how each person feels about the NRA and the Second Amendment. Uh, in the book, I basically give you his stance, uh, and uh, I, let, I let the reader make up their own mind. But did he pay a price? Absolutely. But that, to Heston, you know, that was the American way. You take a stand and uh, you let the chips fall where they may. So I, I give him a lot of credit for that. Uh, I, I, you know, the NRA thing, to make up your own mind about that. Charlton Heston, one of America's, part of America's greatest generation. And if you want yep. to read about him, the name of the book is Charlton Heston, Hollywood's Last Icon by Mark Elliott. Thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Well, it is great talking to you as, uh, as always, and um, I'm sure we'll hook up again somewhere further down the line. Okay, thank you. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Thanks again to Mark Elliott. The name of the book, Hollywood's Last Icon, Charlton Heston. All right, Beth, I understand you have an event that's coming up in a couple of weeks. What's that about? Yes, I do. My chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, which is the New York City chapter, is having a fundraiser for education. And um, we are having uh, Carol Birkin as our speaker, and she wrote the book Revolutionary Mothers. We're going to be talking about our ancestors, you know, not only the the men. Everybody hears about the, the heroic men who go off to war, but I'm telling you, a lot the women that stayed home had to run the farms. Some of them entered into the battles themselves, and we're going to have an auction. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's Thursday. April 20th at 6.30, 3 West Club, where we have our Civil War Roundtable meetings. And um, there will be a cocktail hour, and there will be a lot of good food and, and drink. And then we're going to have our cocktail, cocktail party. And um, after that, we will have our auctions, and Carol Birkin is going to be talking to us about her book, Revolutionary Mothers, and we're going to share with each other what we know about our ancestors. 
it should be fun. Okay, and another note, next week we're going to have Ed Henry, National Fox News correspondent, and he's got a book about Jackie Robinson and about Jackie Robinson's faith and what faith had to do with the breaking of the color barrier in 1947, April 15th, 1947. And of course, part of what breaks down is that uh, Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson were both practicing Methodists. Hooray! Well, <laughs> you don't usually use the term practicing Methodist. What do you use, Beth? <laughs> I'm a Methodist. Okay. I mean, somebody asked me, I'm a Christian, and I was raised a Methodist. We have a wonderful tradition. We were the folks that freed the slaves. We do all kinds of nice stuff. No, no, Methodists never make anybody mad. Well, Ed Henry said that Branch Rickey had a shorter major league career because, you know, he didn't play baseball on Sundays because he was a Methodist, of course. That's the, right. Well, the other thing that he hit 239 lifetime may have shortened what? his major league career. But. <laughs> That's not, I couldn't go to movies on Sundays. On Sunday, that was the Lord's Day, and we went to church, Sunday school. It was good times. Now, I and know we didn't spend a lot, a lot of time on estate planning this week, but we'll be back next week. But again, if you want to catch us on estate plannings, Tuesday, April 25th in Maspeth's Queens at Connolly's Corner, Tuesday, April 27th at Howard Beach at Lenny's Clam Bar, Friday, April 28th in Bayside at the Adria. And Chris, where can they find out about it online? You can find out about it on our Facebook page, Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors, Twitter, don't forget that. And of course, on our website, connorsandsullivan.com, you can sign up directly on the website, connorsandsullivan.com slash seminars, or look for the seminar button on the front page. Okay, well, I think David Kincaid is telling us it's time to go on. Thank you for joining us for this hour. We'll see you next week with Ann Henry. You've been listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Bye-bye. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.